like to make a few comments before we do our second reading this morning. Um, the Psalter, as both the prayer book and the hymnal of the Bible, is full of many difficult psalms. Now, whether those psalms be psalms of lament or of imprecatory or even psalms of praise, there are many psalms that we have a hard time understanding how they help us to see our place in the story of redemption. In his classic work, Life Together, which we looked at this past Friday night in our book study, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer makes this comment about the psalms, and we read this on Friday. And this comment, I think, is actually quite helpful as we look at Psalm 22 today. Bonhoeffer says this, he says, a psalm that we cannot utter as a prayer, a psalm that makes us falter and horrifies us, is a hint to us that there is someone else here praying. Not us. And the one that, who is here protesting his innocence, who is invoking God's judgment, or who has come to such infinite depths of suffering, is none other than Jesus Christ himself. He it is who is praying here, and not only here, but in the whole Psalter. Psalm 22, similar to Psalm 25 that we considered together last week, is classified as an individual lament. There are both individual and communal laments in the Psalter, but this one in particular is an individual lament. But as we make our way through this Psalm, we can see that the tone of the Psalm shifts. It shifts from lament to a future hope in God. But Psalm 22 also comprises the first of a trilogy of what we will call the Passion Psalms. These psalms take the reader from the cross of Christ to the resurrection of Christ. Psalm 22 is known as the Crucifixion Psalm. Psalm 23, probably the best-known psalm and verses of Scripture in all the world, is a burial psalm. Many of us have probably heard the psalm used multiple times at funerals of friends or beloved family members. And Psalm 24 describes for us both Jesus' defeat of Satan and sin by his death and burial, but also Jesus' defeat of death itself by his victorious resurrection from the grave. So now, if you would, open your Bibles, if you would do me a favor, and open your Bibles or your device. There are Bibles in the pews in front of you for those that do not have either with you. But make your way to Psalm 22. So while we will be focusing our attention on a few of the verses that are here in our bulletins, what I would like to do is for us to read this entire psalm together for context and also for clarity. But doing so, I think, will help us to properly grasp how this psalm aids us in the season of Lent and our Lenten observance, but also, more importantly, how this psalm invites us into the story of Christ. So if you would, beginning in verse 1, we will read the entire psalm, then we will pray, and then we will begin. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. 
To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make their mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me, like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint, and my heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For the dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all of my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard and he, when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation, and they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. If you would now please join me in prayer. Lord, we give you praise and thanks for this day. Lord, thank you for calling each of us out of our beds this morning, Lord, and into the gathered worship with your bride at Christ Community Church here. Lord, we thank you for your word, Lord, for the worship that we have experienced so far this morning. Lord, we pray, God, that as we continue to worship you, Lord, through hearing your word read and taught and proclaimed, Lord, through coming to the table, and Lord, through more singing and confession, Lord, we pray, God, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So while this psalm is, as I've already mentioned, an individual lament, and while it also does speak indeed of the crucifixion of our Lord, 
I would like to propose this morning an additional way, not a different way, but an additional way in which to look at this psalm that I think is both complementary to both lament and the crucifixion of Christ. As mentioned a moment ago before we read, the tone of this psalm, as we read this, you may have picked up on it, the tone shifts from an anguished lament to a future hope in God. But I also believe that this tonal shift changes from lament to the completion of suffering. So here's what I want to propose. I want to propose that what we have in Psalm 22, particularly starting in verse 19, which is the text starting in your bulletin, is not only the crucifixion of Christ, but also the moment of the death of Christ. The moment in which he yields up his spirit. The moment in which he finishes his work of atonement. And also the moment for which we come and we Eucharist each week. As Paul will write to the Corinthians, he says, As often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. So beginning in verses 19 to 21, which again starts there in your bulletin, we can see that Jesus' suffering and anguish is completed. It's over. His work is completed, so now he can rest. And he does so by praying for deliverance. Again, he says this. And really, we could back this up to verse 13 or 12, but I'm not going to. So starting in verse 19, again, he says, but, to, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Save me, excuse me, deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Again, we could back up to verse 12 because the mention of animals like these, these wild animals in the Old Testament is usually symbolic of the powers and the principalities, the demonic. But both to our dismay, reading this here, both to our dismay and to our short-sighted understanding, we, we assume that deliverance means the removal of suffering. But to our dismay, that is not always the case in Scripture. Deliverance does not always mean that suffering is removed. Deliverance as is the case for the Lord Jesus, meant drinking the cup of the wrath of God down to the dregs, as Psalm 75 says. Jesus understood this well. He, even as he prayed in the garden to allow this cup of wrath to pass over him, he also prayed on the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So here in this prayer of deliverance in verses 19 to 21, Christ no longer is asking God why he has forsaken him. Instead, he understands that God has blessed him in his sacrificial suffering by not hiding his face and by not despising his sacrifice. And we can see this by the language that is used here in the next few verses, starting in verse 22. As a prayer of Jesus, he says this, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. So now in this part of the prayer, standing in contrast to those who mocked him in verses 6 through 8, and standing in contrast to those who cast lots for his clothes in verse 18, is now the church herself, those who fear the Lord, and those who are the brothers of Christ. 
Again, he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In Hebrews chapter 2, which quotes this psalm, the author of Hebrews states this. He says, since the one who saves and those who are saved have a common origin, Jesus does not hesitate to call them his brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. And in the midst of the congregation, or other words that could be used here both in the Greek and the Hebrew, in the midst of the assembly, or in the midst of the church, I will, I will praise you. The taunts of the mockers are now drowned out by the praise of the faithful, of those who rest in the finished work of Christ as his brothers. But notice that verse 23 begins with this phrase. It says, You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring or all you seed of Jacob glorify Yahweh. Christ, as the promised seed, glorifies the Father on the cross. As he prayed in his high priestly prayer in John 17, he says this, Father, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished all of the work that you have given me to do. But it's the next verse, verse 24, where I want to slow down for a minute and take a hard look at the language, because I think this is really what speaks to us, the understanding of the suffering of Christ. And so notice here, from the outset, from out of this glorifying God in verse 23, comes really an encouragement here in verse 24, that God does not hide himself away from the suffering of the Son, nor would he hide himself away of the suffering of his people. Now, there are many places in Scripture, and you might, if, if you're well-versed in Scripture, your, pro, your mind is probably going to places where we read, do not hide your face from me, do not hide your face from me. The Psalms are full of it. And Scripture does tell us that God does indeed hide his face from us. But every time it is mentioned, it is mentioned within the context of our sin, or the context of our rebellion against God, or even in the context of our misperceived understanding of how his presence among us works. But like Psalm 25 last week, the issue, as we mentioned last week, is always our flaky loyalty to him, not his loyalty to us. And so while it sometimes might seem like God is far away from us, God does not hide himself away from our suffering. And he especially does not hide himself away from the suffering of the Son. Listen to how verse 24 reads again. He says, For he, speaking of God, has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. I double-checked the Hebrew to make sure this wasn't like a bad English translation. The word for no is all through this verse, so or not is all through this verse. So this is not some, so us just saying, oh, it really says in the Hebrew, well, he has hidden his face and he has despised him. This is not what it's saying. This is a good translation. So starting here in, in this verse, we see this phrase, despised and abhorred, in the Hebrew is best understood as ceremonial uncleanliness. Which tells us really a great deal about how we interpret the Father's response to Jesus on the cross. But this does beg a question, right? Because we know that God cannot abide anything ceremonially unclean. We, we talked about this over Epiphany when the demonic, the, the man possessed by a demon, shows up in the synagogue that day and Jesus casts him out. But this begs a question though, right? So does this mean though, if God cannot abide things that are ceremonially unclean, does this mean that the Father turns his face away from Christ 
in his suffering as one of our old favorite hymns says in one of the verses. According to the psalm, no. The father not only did not hide his face from Christ, but he heard the suffering pleas of the son. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's this word forsake that throws us off. We hear this phrase every Good Friday in our Tenebrae service. Forsake throws us off every time. And it should. It's intentional. Because it speaks to the reality of the loneliness of Christ on the cross. But it also speaks to the reality of His loneliness in the work that He is accomplishing on the cross. The word forsaken in Hebrew can also mean the word abandoned. So reread it this way. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? So let's ask the heart-wrenching question with that understanding. Did the Father abandon Christ? Or, in His suffering, has God fully incarnate? Did Jesus, the eternal Son, in that moment, fully comprehend exactly what it means to have our sins separate us from the Lord? Hebrews 5 tells us this. It says that Christ, as our high priest, is able to sympathize with us in our weakness. But while being tempted in every way that we have been tempted, he remains sinless until that moment on the cross when he became sin itself. On the cross, taking upon the sins of, the entire, of all of humanity, Christ became ceremonially unclean before God. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, For our sake the Father made Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. But did the Father abandon Christ? Did He reject Christ? According to this psalm, no. According to Psalm 16, verse 10, God not only did not abandon Jesus, but He did not even let His body see decay in death. Isaiah 53, which we read a few weeks ago in Sunday school, we read this, that Christ was despised and rejected by men, not by God. He was afflicted by God. But he was not rejected by God. Later in that exact same chapter, Isaiah writes this. He says that men hide their faces from the suffering of Christ, not God. Another portion of Hebrews 5 also testifies to the reality of this when it states this. Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he, Jesus, was heard because of his reverence. And although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Again, it is hard for us to comprehend and to fully grasp that deliverance does not always mean the removal of suffering. In the case of the Lord Jesus, the Father did not abandon Him, nor turn His face away from Him. Instead, His prayers to the Father rose up as a propitiation, as a wrath-bearing sacrifice for the sins of mankind. His prayers rose up as a ransom to those whom He has saved from the grip of the devil. His prayers on the cross rose up as the killing blow to death itself. And although Christ became the full embodiment of sin on the cross, the Father did not reject Him, nor did He reject Jesus' sacrifice. Instead, He heard Him, He accepted His sacrifice, and He delivered us by His death. 
Matthew Henry, the, the great preacher from the late 1700s, he writes this. He says, God has not rejected the suffering Redeemer, but has graciously accepted it as a full satisfaction for sin and a valuable consideration on which to ground the grant of eternal life to all believers. God did not despise, nor did he abhor Christ, nor did he turn his face away from Christ. But when Christ cried to him, when his blood cried out for peace and for pardon for us, the Father heard him. And then Matthew Henry ends it with this statement. He says, this is the matter of our rejoicing, and this is the matter of our thanksgiving. I love that sentence. I love it because it so helpfully transitions us to the other few verses I wanted to look at today. Again, he says this, that the Father hears Christ. When his blood cries out for peace and for pardon, the Father hears him. This is our matter of thanksgiving. So notice again the language, just picking up in the very next verse, the language that is so helpful here. And notice how interesting it is, the wording of verses 25 and 26 especially in light of what we have established. He says this, From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. Here in verse 26, we see this word afflicted again. We just read it in verse 24. But in verse 26, it's actually different. It's the same word, but it's written differently. In verse 26, it's written in the plural. But in verse 24, it's written in the singular. So in the plural, this means that the object has changed in this sentence. And from the context of these verses, we can see that Jesus' prayer is now changing. No longer is he praying for himself. He's praying for his bride. He's praying for the church. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied, he prays. The afflicted, the church, shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek God, us, the church, will praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. May our hearts live forever. So if we are rightly interpreting this psalm through the lenses of Christ and his sacrificial death, then what Christ is praying for us here as his bride is the complete sharing of himself with us. And notice, he actually says in this prayer exactly how he is sharing himself with us. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. What Jesus blesses us with is himself as our communal meal. What is it that Matthew Henry stated that I just read a minute ago? He said, when Christ cries out to the Father, when his blood cries for peace and for pardon, the Father heard him, this is the matter of our thanksgiving. Or in the Greek word, the matter of our Eucharistia. So consider verses 25 and 26 again as this prayer of Christ directed toward the church, or directed toward the Father for the church. From you, Father, comes my praise in the church. My vows I have performed by being lifted up on the cross. In front of those who fear you, the church shall eat of me and be satisfied and give praise and thanks to Yahweh. And then he turns to us and he says, may your hearts live forever. This sounds outrageous, but listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 6, starting at verse 53. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, 
Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you will have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. And whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread or the manna that came down from heaven, not like the manna that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this manna, speaking of his body, they will live forever. As Jesus says in all three synoptic gospels, God is the God of the living, not of the dead. The Eucharist has always was always intended by Christ to convey to us that as we partake of the bread and the cup, we are remembering his death and we are proclaiming his death. But also, as Paul reminds the Corinthians, we are participating in his flesh and his blood in order to strengthen us, both body and spirit, so that we can live and so that we can endure our own suffering and affliction with the patience of Christ. And another section of Life Together that we also read on Friday night, and this is a longer section, but I would like to read it to you. Bonhoeffer writes this about the table. He says, Jesus is the true bread of life. He is not only the giver, but he is the gift itself. So, he says, the daily fellowship binds Christians to our Lord and to one another. The fellowship of the table also has a festive quality. Our life is not only toil and labor, it is also refreshment and joy in the goodness of God. We labor, but God nourishes us and sustains us. And this is the reason for celebrating. But, he says, but the table fellowship of Christians also implies a communal obligation. It is our daily bread that we eat, not my own. We share our bread. Thus we are firmly bound to one another, not only in spirit, but also in our whole physical being. The one bread that is given to our fellowship links us together in a firm covenant. And so it's out of this communal meal and all that it entails that Jesus then prays this proclamation of verse 27, which is the last verse we'll look at in this text today. He says this, All of the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. This word remember in Hebrew could be defined in two other ways. It could be defined as profess, but it could also be defined as praise. The Apostle Paul, taking a clue from this, proclaims this in Philippians chapter 2. He says, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess, or every tongue profess, that Jesus is Lord to the glory or to the praise of God the Father. So when we come to the table every single week here at Christ Community Church to fellowship together, over the Eucharist, we are taking part in an act of remembrance of Christ's humility and obedience 
by proclaiming His sacrificial work and praising the Father for not turning His face away from Christ, but hearing Him and accepting His sacrifice. At the table, we both remember and proclaim the gospel itself so that all the nations of the earth remembers Christ and turns to Yahweh. So this morning, as we... As our worship now transitions from hearing the word to doing the word, let us come to the table and give thanks for what Christ has done. And let us remember and proclaim and praise. This Lenten season, let us draw near with confidence to Christ, remembering his death and his completed work, so that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of suffering and need. Thanks be to God. Amen.